Hello, everybody. Welcome to Two Guys Five Movies. This is one of your co-hosts, Chris Gasper. This is Frank Pelican. You're listening to episode 104, and tonight we are covering the next top five compelling female protagonists. Um, we did this last January, um, and a uh, really good list um, that Frankie came up with. That's back in the archives at this point. Um, so we decided we were going to go ahead and cover this again and shine a little light on um, actresses and lead roles here. So, Frank, were there any others that you had considered putting on this list um, other than these top five that you came up with? So there's a few movies that we've talked about previously that probably would have made this list, like um, Midsummer and The Witch, and although you would probably argue that Midsummer's female protagonist isn't very compelling. Um, we never talked about Midsummer yet on the podcast. Really? We've just, we've just talked about it so often, off right, air. Just- yeah. We've never actually um, had that conversation like on, on a podcast. That'll end up on another list someday. I'm sure. Um, there's a couple of movies uh, from the late late 80s, I guess, mid-80s, um, like An Angel at My Table that I thought about. Um, what is that? I'm not familiar with that movie. The, oh, fuck. What is her name? No, I've already... Jane Campion movie. Okay. Um, about a woman who's like a... I guess she's like like an artist and she suffers from some mental mental health issues um there's a movie that i watched just in the past couple of weeks that i liked a lot called ladybird um that probably would have made the list had i have seen it um previously is that tilda swinton Mm -hmm. yes uh sourcey ronan is the main um actress and then uh Timothy Calumet. Oh, okay. No, okay. Yeah. I've only seen the cover of that movie, and because I see it so I saw on the screen, I just assumed it was Tilda Swinton that was starring in that. She does kind of look like Tilda Swinton. Yeah. She has that very, like, smooth skin stuff, you know? Yeah, it's really good. Hmm. Um, Like, The Night Porter, I thought about, um, and we've talked about, like, Annihilation, we've talked about, and um, there was another one, Promising Young Woman, that kept coming up. But um, I just never rented it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that I've heard good things about. That um, you know, is something that could have possibly made the list. But I think mostly that I'm pretty, pretty comfortable with all five of these movies. Like there was nothing where I thought at some point, like, oh my god, like how did I forget about this movie? Right. I would at some point like to talk about Clueless, which is another one that I've thought about putting on hmm. the list that last year and then this list. Um, but you know how I feel about uh tarnishing lists with the, those crummy comedies right with putting comedies on anything mm-hmm. when i can put a drama instead right. so sure <clears throat> yeah um no despite how how i feel about any of these movies um to fit your category like these are all great performances um <clears throat> in all five of these movies i mean so uh for those for those leads but um uh yeah so um, I think we're just going to go ahead and jump right in probably, but I just do want to remind everybody that uh, we'll be off next week, the very last weekend of the month, as we're doing all year. We'll be covering one of the years of 1990s horror, so we'll be covering the top five horror films of 1992 in two weeks. And then when we come back in April, we will be joined by a friend of the podcast, Jason Heaster, to discuss all four Indiana Jones movies and uh, kind of uh, third man slash 
Indiana Jones retrospective episode, uh, which I'm looking forward to. And then we will have the top five films filmed in Maryland. Um, Top five movies filmed in Maryland, I guess. Maybe sounds better. Uh, Which we were just talking about before this podcast started a little bit. And that should be an interesting list. And then, of course, uh, finishing with uh, the month with 1993 horror films. All right. Um, Number five on your list, Frank, is Lady Vengeance from 2005. It is directed by Park Chan-wook. It stars Lee Young-ae, Troy Minsink, and Nam Il-woo. It has a 76% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and an 87% from audiences. Uh, you want to tell us a little bit about this movie and why you put it on the list? Uh, so the third in um, Park Chan-wook's Vengeance trilogy, uh, preceded by Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance and Old Boy. Um, it's told asynchronously and follows the release of uh, Lee Goomja um, from prison for murder. Um, she's come out reformed um, and is considered basically to be a model prisoner and a kind-hearted and um, almost like saintly figure. Um, as you find out through the course of her current state of being upon her release and then through flashbacks, um, she was basically wrongly convicted of the murder of a um, six-year-old boy uh, 15 years prior. Um, and she had confessed to the murder because um a killer had basically kidnapped her daughter and said that if she didn't confess to the murder of this kid so he didn't get caught um he would kill her daughter so she had to go to jail for 15 years in order to protect um her daughter's life for 13 years however long it is i think that's um 13 years yeah it is um so when she gets out um she's not only trying to set all the machinations and process to get revenge on um uh the killer who's uh mr mr bake who's played by um uh park chan wook regular uh choi min sik um actually pretty much like all south korean um psychological and serial killer horror heavy choi min sik who's like in everything um one of my favorite non-american actors honestly like he's pretty amazing amazing yeah um so while she's doing that she travels to australia to reunite with her daughter and ends up bringing her daughter home with her although the daughter doesn't speak any korean so it's kind of a an awkward relationship it's it's funny because usually when you see movies where there's an english speaking component like you find that most characters in the movie speak english and it's it's interesting to me that like almost no one in this movie speaks english so like no one can communicate with this this girl or her adopted parents Mm-hmm. Um, she kidnaps Mr. Bake, um, ties him up in an abandoned schoolhouse that he used to teach in. You find out that he's also murdered um, four other young children over that course of time, and be mostly because she didn't um, she didn't let the police like arrest him originally. Like that led him to kill more kids um so she assembles the families of all of these children and they have to make the decision are they going to murder this man or are they going to turn him over to the police and in the end they end up killing him <clears throat> um and then taking a picture together at the gravesite just so none of them can ever tell on the others um 
and in the end i guess like with her vengeance like sated um she's kind of lost but she sees the ghost of um the young boy who um was the one that was originally killed and she was blamed for um who's like now in his ghostly form now like a grown man to the age that she would have been grown to and um he uh gags her and then she takes tofu and like wanders off and the idea is that her daughter is going to go back home to australia because she doesn't feel like she can care for her but then at the end i guess it's implied that they're gonna she's gonna stay or there's still gonna be some kind of relationship um because she's got the sympathy tofu or whatever right um it's the least linear of all of the vengeance trilogy um in the sense that it's like not linear at all um the rest of the movies uh old boy and sympathy for mr vengeance while they're pretty much told straightforward they're still like pretty complex movies in terms of their plotting um i actually think this movie's plot is overall like a little less complex than old boy maybe and mr vengeance but because of the way that it's told it makes it feel like more convoluted than it actually is um it's it's also filmed in a really dreamy um fairy tale-esque style um it's almost like a prototypical like a24 movie like years before a24 existed um in the sense that you know there's scenes like where her face is like glowing with like like a beatific whatever like holy radiance and um just the way that like the overexposure of some of the scenes and like the rich colors and um, the way that he films it, it feels like very much like a fairy tale. And it's kind of told in that respect too, like almost a, like an un- 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 uncensored grim fairy tale about the, whatever, like the dangers of, I don't even know, like what the moral of that fairy tale would be. Probably don't trust creepy old fucking men who called you sexy when you were in school or something um really great like really solidified by the performances of um lee young i and uh women sick um are both fantastic in it um my least favorite of this this trilogy but i still think it's a really good movie oh, it's gonna um, ask you that yeah i i really i mean i old boy is i i think a modern classic honestly Right. Um, I just didn't I, I know think if you ranked the second or sympathy. It's third. Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance is a very brutal and straightforward movie, but it's really um compelling. Um and honestly it's just like a shade below Old Boy. Um I think Old Boy is one of the most brilliant tellings of revenge and redemption. Yeah. Like like I rank that maybe alongside like Kill Bill in the modern era of like these movies involving revenge um and park chan wook has a pretty distinct and like almost inimitable style um he really can capture like the pathos of like human suffering i think really well while not making it overbearing or too dour like there's always a an element of like kinetic energy with his movies and um they really do have a very larger than life and almost like mystical feel to them pretty consistently, but this one more so than the others. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, I, I like I said, I don't think it's as good as the other ones, but I think the performance-wise, um, her performance is pretty amazing in it. Um, I think the moving, I, I wish that it was, I wish it was told a little less in flashback, and just more. And I guess you really couldn't tell it chronologically because I'm like you lose the twist of the idea that she didn't actually kill the kid, even though she's admitting throughout the movie to killing the kid. Um, and she really does, I think, take to heart like the blame of like being the cause of the death of that child, and then later the death of the other four children. Um, but she's really good in it, and uh, Choi Min Sik is just really good in everything that he's ever in. He always he's he's the perfect. I don't know what a good like English speaking analogy to this is, but like he's the perfect every man that is all of a sudden like this dangerous psychopath, right? Like somebody that you wouldn't expect to be a killer just from outward appearances. I mean, it in my opinion, like old boy and um, I saw the devil are his like two best. Right. performances in that scent like is um odesu and uh old boy and um i can't remember the killer's name and um i saw the devil but in both of those movies like there's just this affable charm to him mm-hmm. like almost like dumpy like you wouldn't consider him to be anything of a threat and then all of a sudden he's you know beating you to death with a hammer or like stabbing you with a screwdriver right. or something so but yeah, I, I like pretty much everything I think I've seen of Park Chan Wook's. I don't think I've seen any of his movies that I don't enjoy, um, and I really do. I really, I, I really enjoyed watching this movie this time. Although I wish it would have been maybe about fifteen minutes, twenty minutes shorter, and just like edited a little differently, like to change that story around. Because you and I talked about this off air, and I do kind of agree with it. There's a couple of definite segments of this movie that go on for just a little bit too long. Yeah. Um, that could have been shortened down, but but still, really, um, really good movie. Yeah, uh, Chan Wook is um, uh, look, this movie's beautiful. Like, I mean, like it, he has like this masterful way of like adding in color to things that like it's not over, it's not too flashy, it's not overbearing, but it still pops on the screen really well um without like overdoing it a lot of times his framing is seems meticulous like it's really well everything everything's really well framed in his movies including this i think the direction's great in this i just um not the biggest fan of like the like the whimsy like that is in the first half and you're right like when you said off air i guess the more i thought about it that a little bit of it is the flashback stuff that adds some of that whimsy into it um, but it's a really tragic story that feels like it's too lighthearted to me at times. And um, I think that's just maybe part of it is part of the time period. I think Chan Wook is really, really good at being able to take things from around the world and still f- like uh borrow things in terms of vision and stuff like that like his vision um he seems really adept at doing that to make his films more um marketable almost and i just wonder if like the whimsy of this doesn't tie into um 
some of the whimsy that was going around like in America at the time, like in terms of like the way movies were told. Um, one segment of my like, you know, white people movies that like I hate, like, and I mean, there's a storytelling reason, I guess, to do it, but that, that would be my argument is that it's more, it's more done. It's more done to almost like myth mythologize, um, uh, what's her name, Gomja, um, so that when you see, when you see the truth of the matter, like it makes it that much more, like psychologically horrific that she's suffered all of this, right. I see. I and I didn't get that from. I just. I. I think maybe that's and maybe that's the thing is like and why it doesn't work for me. Like that aspect of the movie is because I just don't take a lot of it that seriously at that point. I think it like lessens the seriousness to me. Seriousness to me of the of the of the tragedy that's happened um, to her uh, because they've spent so long being lighthearted about some of this stuff, like in prison and everything. Yeah. I again i i think it's meant to just like be a like a juxtaposition of the actual horror of the situation with what he's presenting on the screen sure yeah Um, there's gilliam does has a movie from the mid-2000s called tideland right that's um very similar in tone in the sense of like it's almost told with his same like trademark um i gotta think of a good term for that it's like kind of like ridley scott's like legend direction it's it's that very um i don't know like almost like effervescent like weirdness kind of in the way that like things are filmed where like everything has like an internal glow almost and Mm -hmm. and i mean in in lady vengeance it's externalized because there's that one point where she's got like the christian um like sun radiation coming from her head mm-hmm. um and it's shown that she can almost like pass that glow on to other people because that's like her internal beauty mm-hmm. coming out and it's things like that where i think it's almost meant to because all of those flashbacks are sort of told from the perspective of somebody whose life she touched while she was in prison right and this group of people that now once they're all out of prison are now indebted to her so that they basically have to do what she needs them to do in order to get her vengeance. Right. And I think that's the point is that you're seeing like, you're seeing her from these different perspectives where she's this saint, but she's also the witch because, you know, she becomes basically like the, I don't even know what you would call it. Like the madam of the jail, like the cell block where she's like the big bad, right? but she's not like, she's still like friendly and helpful to everyone except for the one like abusive um murderer that she ends up killing mm-hmm. by feeding her bleach over the course of two right, right. two years um, yeah there's some real dark humor in this that i do appreciate um it's just the way dark humor is handled at times i i'm not a big fan of let me let me ask you this here's the one i said like i really like the concept of this movie like off air um to you but there's one thing that like made me question saying that I think bringing the daughter back into the movie really throws it off. And I don't really see a really strong point for bringing the daughter back into the movie. Like, it, it seems like if 
it seems like it would be a tighter movie without that added complication. And I think it kind of slows the movie down by having the daughter come back. It's true. Um, and those scenes with the Australian family are actually some of my least favorite in the entire movie. Like, yeah, like when she gets drunk with them or whatever. Yeah. Um, it's funny you mention that because so recently watched The Dark Knight again. Mm-hmm. And one of my biggest complaints about that is when Batman goes to um, wherever he goes to, Laos China. or yeah, China, whatever. Yeah, uh-huh. Um, and I like always have felt like that segment of that movie takes it all out. So I guess it's similar where it's like, yeah, <clears throat> could you not get the same effect just through some lines of dialogue or sure, like a slightly different approach? Yeah, um, we, we we both based about that scene in Dark Knight for so many years now. Like, um, but yeah, it should have been handled like it. It's not that it's a bad act; it's action sequence in that movie necessarily. Um, although I had problems with the action sequences in general in that movie, but um, it should have just been a quick cut to like him getting ready to leave, and then like basically a quick cut to like the plane like landing, and like I don't know him throwing the dude out the damn plane door or something like that, and coming right. back with him because it just slows the movie down. Yeah, or he just stops him at the fucking airport or yeah. the port or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like... All right, but yeah, but I, I after you like talked about the other night and i rewatched it too um i think we need to do um sometime this year like uh like the nolan batman trilogy um boy am i looking forward to that so we can have another hot take um episode (laughs) here's my hot i am not christopher nolan hot take over right uh but despite my feelings about this movie, uh, Lee Young A is nails everything that she's given to do, and she's given a lot to do here. Like, there's a lot of different things that she has to do in this movie in terms of like the different traits of her characters, like the different attitudes she has to take on and stuff like that. Like, especially during, which I think is the best part of the movie, is is the beginning to some degree with the prison stuff. Like, um, but like all the different like you know attitudes that she displays throughout like i think she nails all of those things um so given the idea that it's compelling female protagonists i yeah i mean she's fantastic in this movie and um yeah so with that aspect of it like completely agree like just nails it okay okay <laughs> I mean, I agree. I, I, yeah. I think she's really good. Yeah. All right. So number four on your list is 1993's The Joy Luck Club is directed by Wayne Wang. Stars Ming-Na Wen, Rosalind Chow, Tamlin Tomita, Francis Nguyen, Lauren Tom, Andrew McCarthy, and Chali Chi. It has an 87% from critics, uh, 89% from audiences. You want to tell us a little bit about this movie um, and why you like it so much? <laughs> Um, so following basically the lives of, um, four young women and their mothers, uh, the mothers who all were immigrants from China to the United States, um, it kind of looks at the, really the trials and tribulations of these women when they were in China and what they had to do and struggle with to come to America. Um, and the similarities, I guess, between them and just the 
the kind of need for these young women who have sort of assimilated into American culture um, to recognize the connection with their uh, Chinese heritage um, and sometimes the, the difficulty they have doing that or the difficulty they have in, in recognizing that connection, um, mostly because I would argue that their mothers are all basically incapable of open adult communication <laughs> in a lot of ways, and it causes like misunderstandings and hard feelings that then have to be resolved. Um, but also causes them to have bad relationships themselves with men, uh, which they all really struggle with, with the exception of the, um, the Ming-Na Wen character, um, who's just kind of like, basically like closed herself off from like any kind of relationships, it seems. And she's the one like on the advent of her going to china to meet her two sisters who had been abandoned by her mother um sort of like reminisces with these women and that's where you get the vignettes of their stories of their lives um i mean i guess i liked this movie a lot when i first saw it Mm -hmm. um and had not really thought about it in the interim because it's probably been 20 some years since i've seen it um before watching it uh this week um you you had asked me why i didn't because you had said that you thought i would reverse this with the number three movie on the list Mm -hmm. and i think the reason that i didn't reverse it is because i don't know how individually compelling any of these women are Mm -hmm. really i think there's a lot of um i I think that it's it's a really interesting look and i think that it helps that um uh wayne wong is um was chinese and that this was one of the first you know english language chinese productions that have been made in the united states and really like one of the only ones for a long time um because there wasn't much of an asian influence uh in hollywood or in american cinema really until probably the past few years i would say like maybe the past five or six years where you've really seen like um what's that one that was really popular a few years ago the millionaires club or whatever it was called and right i do remember that but it's interesting because i was i was talking to my mother about this yesterday actually um i've never really considered it because i've watched so much asian cinema over the past like 20 plus years that to me like asians are just represented on film like all over the place but i guess i've never thought about how little Aside from like sidekicks, bad guys, or you know, they're the yakuza, or they're the the martial arts heavy to some like whatever right. like bad guy, or they're comic relief, you know, like in The Hangover or something. Like you really right. don't have yeah. a lot of film that's firmly based in the the Asian American community, and it's it's, it's interesting to see because. Like I guess that we really don't know as much about that that world as you do about like maybe some other cultures that were emigrated to America. Like you know the Latin American culture, I think is pretty well represented in film. Um, black culture is pretty well represented in film. And now that I'm saying that black people were emigrated to America, but you know like you look at like different ethnic groups and you see like a lot of their you know Irish American, Italian American, um, and sometimes in really like 
hyperbolic ways or whatever. Like there's a lot of exaggeration there. But seeing this movie where it's just a really like down to earth and realistic portrayal, I think, of like these families and you know, like one of my favorite segments is um uh the one where uh Waverly brings her um her new boyfriend home um to have dinner and everyone is horrified because he puts soy sauce on like right dish um or you know he's like takes the biggest portion or he drinks like two glasses of wine before anybody else has even had like half right. of their first glass it's like all these small little things that as americans i don't know that we really even think about but there's like these really delicate you know i guess rules of manner in like the chinese culture mm-hmm. um i found it interesting that for the most part like i mean i guess it's it's waverly and um i can't remember her name uh the taller one um that are both married to like successful white men mm-hmm. <clears throat> which i find interesting um just because like i never like, i guess never really thought about like that interaction between like chinese americans and you know like white americans um but overall it's a really heartwarming film um it's got some really i think heavy-handed dramatic moments to it um you said this off air and i had not really thought about it but i completely agree that there's a lot of um emotional manipulation just in terms of the way things are filmed and the music that's used and um the way the scenes are set to try and like draw this sense of sadness and sympathy out of you towards characters that honestly i mean how many characters in this movie like 12 main characters kind of you could say right i mean at least eight and then like three or four like secondary characters that are still like pretty prominent in it sure where you're never really built to know you know more about the dead mother that you never really see a lot of interaction with right. than you do anybody else and so i guess a lot of it is like necessary in order to take you know a pretty substantial the the amy tan novel which is like you know a pretty substantial book and like reduce it down to this two hour and 20 20 minute film mm-hmm. but um the performances are all really good in it yeah um it's really beautifully filmed uh there's the scene towards the end um where uh uh lauren tom uh the lena lena st Clair character is um sitting outside and basically channeling the rage of the spirit of her dead grandmother like in the rain like in this you know whatever like this beautiful house and basically forcing this man to like see her as she is which again is another thing that i think is weird is that it was her own fault that like the communication their relationship Mm -hmm. broke down right because she refused to talk to him or she refused to say like what she thought but it's like now that she is like they can be together and be i don't know right yeah but that's Um, a really beautiful scene like a a lot of the stuff in that vignette um yeah that's that's michael paul chan um who's a a guy i really like he's a character actor because you know again they won't give any kind of leading roles to Asian actors like a lot of times in Hollywood, but um he he's he nails everything that he's ever in um throughout the course of like his career. Yeah. 
also there's another scene the scene with um rose and uh andrew mccarthy is really well done too yes so, I I agree. Yep. just just a lot of yeah it's it's funny because uh when i said like do i have any criticism that i really care to like go into or read here and i was like oh yeah and i was like actually no i don't know if you remember me saying that right before we started and um it was because i was looking at it again and i was like oh frank's gonna agree with all this i think um so a lot of the points that you just brought up in terms of condensing things down kind of like um some of the things about this being like a lot of times their own fault like and those kind of things like is is stuff that hal hinson from the washington post kind of talks around and he says it's actually boiling it down like the novel into the film um, exposed a number of flaws that weren't prominent in the novel itself and says that often the women come across as noble self-sacrificing victims instead of courageous and resilient survivors. And he says, listening to their tales of woe, you feel that they are all blameless, that their suffering was imposed from without, usually at the hands of men. Even one of the mothers kills her baby. She can take comfort in the fact that she was driven to this extreme by a brutal philandering husband. Um, he says that uh, it is in this way that the events of the film often appear, appear to contrive to fit the pattern of feminist ideology. The film is weakest as a result in the places where the agenda reveals itself. Um, is especially true with a few of the performances which are compromised in their eagerness to present Asian American women in a positive light. It might have just been nice to have one character deserve the heartache she endured. Um, and uh goes on to say that it's like, you know, this movie is, you know, has a lot of like, you know, value to it in the terms of like, you know, we don't see enough films with this many women. We certainly don't see it with Asian Americans. Um, and it helps with that imbalance. But he says that uh, it's a little less profound than the filmmakers want us to believe in the end. Um and I, I mean, I can't disagree with some of that stuff. Like, uh, I think you were you were saying some of those similar things. Um, and he takes a little bit further talking about the feminist ideology of it. But um, yeah, I, like I said, it was manipulative. Um, yeah. It wanted me to think it was more profound than what it was when I was watching it. But I also would think that the manipulation was solid. <laughs> sure, it definitely pulls those emotions out of you. Yeah. Yeah, and and I do think the performances are really good in it. Um, overall, uh, I I particularly think that um, Ming Na Wen is is really good in it. And it's nice to see her when she's young, when she's younger in a role like that, a prominent role. Um, and you can see that that strength of her as an actress that continues to this day in a number of roles um, uh, that she's been in the past few years, uh, five six years. Um, yeah, like it's um, it was really nice to see that, and um, it was just nice to see other cultures in this movie because I had only seen parts of this movie when I was younger, like on Cinemax, I think we figured out or something. But it's like it was just really nice to see other cultures that are you know in America represented on film. Like I, I just enjoyed it, um, you know, being able to see like different people's lives. Um, it's it's interesting that like going back to what I said earlier like that the asian american experience has never really been like fully explored by hollywood i mean you have there's this and then there's better luck tomorrow which is like 10 years later like 2001 2002 um which is a crime drama 
about um intelligent like young asians who end up like murdering somebody and then um crazy rich asians as well like 2018 or something right. yeah and then there's that the farewell movie um <clears throat> that was last year that was kind of like sidelined i guess from theatrical release mostly by covid um but you don't really see that much where asian americans are a prominent role sure um, and again to me it's like i feel like i'm almost like blind to it just because i watch so much like asian cinema in general that i just i see you know asian people are probably represented on my tv at least like a quarter of the time and maybe right. a little less than that but it's a lot you know and so maybe i just don't even think about like that inequality where you don't really see that story being told and i think it's an interesting story to tell you know sure. but it shouldn't be yeah. bernardo bertolucci who's like because you know you have the last emperor and it shouldn't be as like a a sidekick or a joke or a right. whatever like well, a it's martial like you arts think it's like you know i mean uh, what what Asian, like, who were the Asian American, like, major Asian American actors and actresses in this country? Um, like, that are, it's like Ken Jeong, right? Who is a comedian, like, known for what, like, he was in The Hangover, right? Because I never watched those movies, but, um, and then in Community, he's really big, um, in that. And, and he's Ken what, Watanabe, right? Who forever was sure. like, the wise Japanese whatever like friend or mentor in a movie um what's his name that played Mr. Miyagi for a long time Pat Morita right uh -huh. Pat Morita um yeah. people like uh Bai Lee and Lucy Liu and um or Bai Lin and Lucy Liu right. and uh -huh. but a lot of those uh, Lucy Liu is probably the best example of somebody her and um what's his name uh Jet Li of like people that actors that were in starring roles or in prominent roles in movies, but mostly playing a bad guy or, you know, a secondary character. And a lot of the Asian actors that you see in this country are ones that are just as active in their home countries. Like they're more active. I mean, in the nineties, it was, um, uh, Chow, Chow Yun-Fat and Tony Leung and um, <clears throat> I guess Jet Li is later in the 90s and right and then you, you know, have then you have John Cho who was in Harold and Kumar like you know as a comedian that comes about in the 2000s and he get you know he's still like a comedian most of the time most things that he does um Sandra Oh um oh, I forgot was, you know television stays primarily in television although a real i know neither of us are huge fans of that movie but it's like a really good performance in um sideways um on film um i but this is the problem right i mean ming na wen is probably one of your more prominent oh we forgot about um daniel day kim right. oh yeah one right that... yeah sure like, is, about yeah. like 20 years has been sure but mostly relegated to television again and like long-running television so like lost for all those years and then he's been on um the hawaii 50 yeah um popping up in small roles here and there um 
but Ming Nam Wen was on ER for years. Um, and then in the past, what, five years, she's been on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. as a primary star. And then um, just recently in The Mandalorian. But yeah, I mean, like you, and uh, I can't remember that that's going to bother me now. Um, uh, there is an actor, and I'm not going to be able to remember his name, which is unfortunate. But he's he shows up um, in a couple different, and as the same character in a couple different of the Marvel television series. And I really like him a lot. And I just oh, the one that plays um, Agent. Uh... Shit. Yeah, I can't remember. Um, I can't remember the primary like show. One that was in. Um, I can't remember the character's name. He was just in Wandavision. Was he? Is that him? Yeah, I think so. Huh. Um. Yeah. Uh, Terry Chen is the actor. No, 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 it's Terry Chen that I uh, I'm thinking of. Um, I think. I was thinking of the guy that plays Jimmy Woo. Oh, in, gotcha. Uh, Wandavision and there's also Aquafina, who's a really um popular actress right now. Um, who's pretty young, so maybe there's some like a rising tide maybe of Asian American actors and actresses. Oh yeah. There, there's, there certainly are, especially among like kind of millennials and, and Gen Z. Um, uh, a lot of young actors appearing in a lot of different television shows. Not that I watch them, but it's like, I see like clips of them and stuff like that in um, HBO, um, CW, like all those kind of things. So, I mean, like the, the representation is getting better, but yeah, no, it is a real problem. Um, and that, I was just doing that little thought exercise of like showing, it's like, we don't have a lot of Asian American actors that we like, just like readily just can recall. Um, and it's like, we can name most of them <laughs> like, and yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a problem. So again, it was really nice watching this with a pretty much almost exclusively Chinese cast. Um, you know, uh, and yeah, so I, I really enjoy that aspect of it, but, uh, yeah. All right. So number three on your list, we are moving now to Australia with Gillian Armstrong's 1979 movie, My Brilliant Career, starring Judy Davis, Sam Neill, Wendy Hughes, and Robert Grubb, has an 85% from critics and a 68% from audiences. You want to tell everybody a little bit about this movie and why it's on the list? You're saying that it's that low with audiences. Um, basically following the adolescence and coming of age um, of Sibylla, who's a uh, headstrong um highly ambitious young girl that kind of lives with her more or less illiterate family in uh, new south wales <clears throat> in like a farming like homestead i guess um she's initially kind of threatened to be married off um because they can't support her anymore but then she gets sent with her grandmother to kind of help refine her um she does not take very well to the refinement uh, spurs the advances of one suitor and ends up falling in love with um, a handsome young man 
um, who's a landowner in the area, uh, played by um, Sam Neill. Um, it's a really small story. I mean, she kind of just like moves. At one point, she's sort of sold as an indentured servant to being the governess of this motley family of i guess like farmers um and she ends up like helping teaching their kids to read but then she gets sent away because the family thinks that she's falling in love with their oldest son um and they don't consider her to be worthy enough to marry him um turns down proposal from sam neil twice um ultimately because she doesn't want to give up on her dream of becoming uh, something better than just a wife or a governess or a maid. Um, she wants to be a writer. And in the end of the movie, you see that she's completed her uh, first novel, which she sends off to a Scottish publishing house. Um, novel's called My Brilliant Career um, to be published, uh, which I guess is sort of a loose. It's based on a novel of the same name, but it's kind of almost like a loose autobiography of. Um, not auto. It's it's. That's like the loose adaptation of the novel. The Miles Franklin novel is this idea of this woman, this young girl, like growing into womanhood and like not letting herself give up on her dreams or her aspirations and sort of following through. Um, there's a number of times, honestly, in the movie where you kind of feel like almost like asympathetic towards her because she's so headstrong and it's like, yeah, you know, why are you being so stubborn about? like you could still have a good life but you know i guess that right that's the beauty of the movie is that she proves you wrong um uh-huh. judy davis gives a pretty phenomenal performance um as sabella yeah um there's a lot that i love about like the this period in australian history and like just the way things look and the you kind of see it like we watched the proposition um last year like maybe a year and a half ago um for the modern Uh westerns and it's 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 the same thing like these almost like beautifully constructed like colonial style houses that are just completely open to the land and to the you know the sky and they're really isolated um and australia is a beautiful country like to film in and like this um armstrong captures the landscape and the just the general feeling of like that time period really well um i i think maybe i think it's difficult for some people to watch like true period pieces like this um yeah i know that there's times when i'm watching these these kind of movies where i do feel almost like a heavy sense of i don't know ennui isn't the right word but it's just like it's like it just feels like you feel the weight of like this slow like plotting like almost like boring presentation of something that it's not like real drama it's not anything it's just like light and the way that it's filmed is definitely like you feel like you're watching the life of of this girl unfold but it's done really well and you know sam neill is really great in it um the dude that plays her other love interest, Frank, um, 
Robert Grubb, I guess. I don't know him. Yeah. Um, he's Grubb, yeah. he's really good. It's like this kind of smarmy, condescending, like unctuous suitor um, who believes in his own like birthright because he's going to inherit a bunch of money in in Britain. Um, but yeah, like watching like uh, Judy Davis's performance, like she's just really fantastic in it. Um, and it captures like a like a real sense of determination and um purpose with her and you know like watching somebody who has these aspirations like follow through on them and become successful it's um it's pretty rewarding and again just a beautiful movie like uh, armstrong films the movie i think it's incredible like the way that it's filmed it just looks really beautiful when you're watching it so yeah, this isn't. I, I I get why. I I'm surprised it's not lower, honestly, among audiences than 68 percent because of exactly what you were saying is that period pieces just turn a lot of people off a lot of times. Um, this isn't, and I'll be honest, I'm I'm not as bad as some people, but it's like I I get caught in that trap sometimes with period pieces where I'm not as engaged because, um, you know, and but. So this isn't the type of movie that would normally draw me in, and it still drew me in to the point, like, I, like, you know, I don't always text you, like, after these movies, but it's like, I texted you pretty soon after, and was like, you know, that was really good, and, like, it, and it, to me, a lot of it's Judy Davis more than anything. Like, she, she has an ability in this movie with this character to just kind of, like, suck you in, and even if you're frustrated, like you said, like, you're still rooting for her, and you still want to see her succeed, um and yeah i mean so i thought this pulled me in kind of on an emotional level to some degree strictly through her performance and 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 i i only i wouldn't even say anything else like uh, even if i think it was you know competently directed and all that kind of stuff i don't think it was anything about that it was just i do like sam the sam neil character and i was actually rooting for those two which is yeah. pretty bittersweet at the end um, because I understand exactly why she makes the choice that she makes despite the fact that like, you know, and I, I guess that's probably the, the feeling I was supposed to feel by the end of it. But I mean, um, but yeah, I, and I thought the ending was really satisfying and, and the idea of how bittersweet that is that, um, you know, in order to, to have that career and to be independent, she, she had to make that choice. And um which is both sad, you know, but also, um, you know, uh, makes sense of the times. So, yeah, I, I really like this. Um, the only criticism that I, I found of it from is, is our good friend Dave Kerr from the Chicago Reader. Um, but even then, it's mixed. But he says that the actions and the sediments are familiar to the point of cliche. And there's not much life in Armstrong's academic direction. She keeps pushing ideas over events and meanings over emotions. However, Judy Davis, as a teenage girl who dreams of transcending her rural background to become a cultivated, independent woman, grants the film much of its charm and passion. Um, so even he recognizes that Davis is really strong in this, even if he doesn't think much of the movie itself. Um, but I get what he's saying about it being academic. I don't think that means it's bad, though, just because it's academic. Agreed. Like I, I think he's using that in a, in a pejorative sense, but I, I, I don't necessarily see that as a bad thing for a movie like this because I think it allows Davis to take over the movie, and like and draw you in. So, 
Yeah, I mean, with with movies that are small like this, in terms of their scale, like you really have to have like a a true standout performance to like draw the movie along, and I think that she she does that performance here. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, I always find it really interesting that it's like Americans ignore like these kind of like perform. I mean, I know we don't have many categories over here, but even the critics associations and stuff like that ignore in America, ignore a lot of like uh, performances like this from other countries, but Britain doesn't. Britain's always like nominating, like is, is like nominating shit from other countries, like all the time. And I noticed it here when I was just looking up Judy Davis to see like what she got nominated for out of this. And um, the BFI, I, I think, she, I think she might have won um, best actor from, from the British film Institute, but it's like, Americans are so damn backwards about like a lot of these critics associates stuff about just nominating something from this country um, and not right. acknowledging the rest of the world. Um, well, shit, how long has it been since they've allowed foreign movies to be nominated for Best Picture? Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Because what? I mean, Parasite was the first one, right, to win? Parasite's the first one to win it, yeah. Right. There was it's all that been, outrage. Like, right, sure be an english language movie it's like hey motherfuckers like right right but i think that i think in our country i think there was some you're not quite at the you're you're not quite at the start of the australian romance period of the 1980s so it probably was like mostly ignored in this country just because nobody cared i mean that was part of um you know, there's some stuff that I guess gained some acclaim over here, like Picnic and Hanging Rock, um, I think did pretty well, or at least was like pretty critically lauded. But for the most part, stuff like that was ignored. And I think it's just because like we are, what is it? The fucking city of broad shoulders. Like that's our country is like where yeah. we look at the stuff that we do as being much greater than what's done outside. And it's hard to recognize like, if it was something set in like if it was fucking dances with wolves you know set in like the american southwest during like this whatever civil war like then people would have more connection to it but because it's set in like some other country and some other period and all we really learn about is like the history of our country and like people don't have that same connection so they're not as really concerned about seeing it or being interested in it and again it really does take like you have to you have to completely buy into her performance to truly enjoy the movie. And if you're right. not willing to do that, or if you find it like, if you're turned off by how slow it is or yeah. just how like, cause in all fairness, like how much actually happens in this movie, I oh, mean, sure. it's, it's mostly just like a comedy of manners in a lot of ways and not even a comedy most of the time. Right. So right. like, unless you're really invested in it and it's just there every once in a while, like movies like this, like grab me when I see them for the first time. And yeah. I think like, what an amazing performance and it sticks with me, which is why like this is on this list and you know, at yeah. number three. So. No, no, I'm glad I watched it. Yeah. It's a brilliant performance. And, um, I, um, yeah. And, and, and the performance really turned it into a really like satisfying movie to watch, even if it is on such a small scale, like it's just. Plus yeah. from the theme itself, I think it's like the a perfect performance for the theme. Cause I think she is pretty compelling. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So, number two on your list. Very recent movie, 2021, directed by Rose Glass called Saint Maud. 
It <clears throat> stars Morpheus Clark, Jennifer Ely, and Lily Frazier. Has a 93% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes, a 67% from audiences. You want to tell us a little bit about this movie and um, why it's on this list? So first of all, Morpheth is how you say it? Morpheth, yeah. I've never looked it up, but I've just always been like Morpheth. Yeah. Um, because of the double D's at the end, but that's interesting to know. Still not a very great name, no offense. Morpheth, <laughs> but um Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's it's Welsh, apparently. Um the uh, next main character. <laughs> so yeah, the um it's the TH of the um uh not like thing so it's like um yeah and then the i and sick uh so more fifth uh is, is, is how you pronounce it gotcha yeah. um so Morpheth plays a nurse named katie although i think um, you're supposed to trill r if i remember correctly <clears throat> but i can't trill r is very good so. Morpheth. yeah there you go Morpheth. that would be right probably um she plays a nurse named Katie who had a traumatic experience where she couldn't save the life of a patient um, that was in her care while she was performing CPR. Um, she's recently converted to Roman Catholicism, although it seems like she's kind of converted in a vacuum because she's got very um, personal ritualistic approaches to her view of Catholicism. Um, she goes to care for a... Um, aging dancer who was once really famous and is now confined to a wheelchair due to being in the late stages of uh, cancer. Um, she tries to imbue some of her own internal spiritualism onto this woman who's got kind of a dour outlook on life. And in some ways, like kind of gets through to her. Um, you see that she almost has these like rapturous reveries of spiritualism and um, uh, what is it amanda right is the the woman that's the dancer um seems to like kind of mime those although you always get the, you get the impression even early on before you find out that it was her just like kind of imitating it that she's not sincere um amanda has a prostitute that she has frequent her house um that she pays to have sex with her um maud um katie who's changed her name to maud to kind of like hide her failure, I guess, you know, because she's kind of reinvented herself, um, tries to convince the prostitute not to come around anymore because she feels like she's basically like putting um, Amanda's soul in danger of being saved after her death. Um, there's a really uncomfortable scene in um, a dinner party where after you think the prostitute has been kind of like scared away by Maud's pleas, um, she comes back and they're making fun of Maud, and Maud ends up slapping Amanda and being dismissed. Um, so getting fired from her caretaking job, she sort of reverts back to what you learn was like how she lived her life previously, which was kind of almost like carefree and um, promiscuously. Uh, she ends up having sex. She ends up attempting to have sex with a man she meets at a bar, um, but she has a flashback to the CPR malady or mishap. Um, and she stops having sex with him and then he rapes her. Yes. Um, and then makes fun of her saying that trying basically, to think, but she also gives a hand job to a guy like before that, like at the bar, right? Oh yeah. In, 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 in yeah. the bathroom. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
this guy like rapes her and then sort of makes fun of her for you know you had sex with my friend like a few years ago which is kind of like when you really get the idea that Mm -hmm. she led a different lifestyle before this conversion um she starts to hallucinate things um a cockroach specifically that she sees but also like almost like stages of rapture that she's hallucinating that like god is talking to her and things are illuminated that aren't and um she finds out that this other nurse is now taking care of amanda she goes back to amanda's house um after the prostitute is left and tries to reconcile which which works and amanda reconciles but then reveals to her that she doesn't believe god exists and she was just trying to connect with Maud by like kind of miming Maud's own reactions to um the presence of God basically so Maud hallucinates that Amanda is a demon and ends up murdering her um and then basically um I guess hallucinates that she is ascending to heaven or becoming the spiritual being yeah um and in doing so like self-emulates herself on the beach um and in one of i don't even know how to describe these things like the very like almost like one or two frame quick cut to show you that something's not exactly as what you're seeing it or is completely different and is far more horrifying than what you're seeing and where you see from her perspective where she's kind of ascended and just like has this internal like glow and all these people are like bowing down and worship you know to her holiness um and a quick cut to like actually seeing her screaming and like engulfed in flame and basically killing herself on the beach um really beautifully filmed movie um a lot of very dark um tones to it like it's very brown and gold and red for the most part um very sickly yellow kind of and pale when you're in her little like one room garret basically that she lives in um it's a very uncomfortable look at like the psychological decline of a person who's got some very serious mental issues that's trying to like bury them under a religious fervor kind of and how that religious fervor sort of warps the internal like delusion that the person has into something else. Um, well, and you, you, I can't remember what word you used for it, but you, you said it earlier, and it's like the key to this like conversion. That's like the dangerous thing because of the mental health is that it's basically done in isolation, right? You know, she doesn't yeah. have anybody that like she goes to. She doesn't have a support group, like you know, a religious group. She doesn't have a preacher or priest or anybody she goes to like it's like this conversion is just she's deciding what the religion is herself and i think that's like the i mean that's the crux of all of it is that she doesn't have anybody like it's that loneliness you know yeah she um i i called it uh like a personal ritualistic approach to the religion so and that's the thing is like it's almost like she's a love like a love struck teen with like a popular band where she's got like cutouts of Jesus and the stages of the cross and the Virgin Mary. And they're like taped to her wall on this, like yeah. almost like makeshift shrine. And 
Um, it's very repulsion esque, where she sees like the the cockroach like go across the floor and then kind of like meld into those mm-hmm. things. Where, um, I I was taking that as being a um, symbolic of like the the disease of her mind, like being sucked into mm-hmm. this backwards backwards assessment of what like religious spirituality is right and almost making it you know the i don't know how you would say it like it's a like a fanaticism as opposed to uh um but like a completely self-involved fanaticism that doesn't even involve like a love of god it just involves like this internal struggle to find like some meaning in herself because she feels so bad about like failing at her job and that she had to basically reinvent herself and become another person. And you know, it's hilarious too, is the, the term self-involved. Do you remember? That's what she actually says. That that's why she doesn't like creative types. She says, cause they're too self-involved, <laughs> but yeah. And I think there's a lot of, um, I think there's a lot of, like hints as to who who she was previously especially when she meets her friend um you get the impression they weren't really friends previously right. when they were together but her former co-worker who goes from feeling sympathetic towards her to genuinely feeling like this connection to her where she wants to you know like help her and be her friend and she's too far gone at that point to even see it yeah um, and it's yeah, really it's, a, it's like, the one person that reaches out to her, and it's like it's too late. I mean, that's kind of the tragedy of that whole thing. Yeah, but it's that one like the one crux of that where she reaches back out to her when she's at the bar and she's alone. Mm-hmm. Um, I always took it as being like just like a need for human connection, which is why she goes home with the right the one guy. Um, she just needs to feel something, and that's right. why she's like so in love with the idea of religion because all of their feeling of connection is coming from the internal. Like she's, Mm -hmm. she doesn't need anybody else because she's got this connection with what she views as God. But what you see eventually is just the psychosis that she has. Mm -hmm. Um, It really is like a good companion to something like um, repulsion in that respect, in the sense of like somebody who's so, um, so self-absorbed in their own, like personal sadness and affliction that they can't see like anything past that. So, yeah. I mean, she's also really like condescending like about it too. Like she thinks she's really righteous. I mean, because like that, there's that whole thing with like the, uh, the bum that she gives like change to or whatever. And like, like mutters, like under breath of like something, like you know. Um, and, and there's a certain uber, like hubris to her. I sure. think. Well, um, because it's it's. I mean, I don't want to like generalize, but you know, like whenever somebody like makes a big change in their life and they're really proud of that change or really excited about it, and then they're kind of condescending to everybody else that hasn't done that change, like, right? Oh, I'm on this keto diet, or sure. I quit, no, I quit smoking and right. I, you know, you should yeah. all quit smoking and nobody sure. should ever. Right. Yeah. It's like that. They can't just make it about like bettering themselves. It's got to be about forcing that betterment on other people. Sure. Which ultimately it was what causes the, her firing, you know, from 
Amanda's service sure. where she had a good thing and she could have just like right. let that woman like live her life in her way and still tried to like help her because I think she was helping her. Yeah. In some ways with the companionship and with sure. this feeling of like connection to another human. Uh-huh. But it's just, you know, she so misunderstands that conversion to Catholicism, I think that she views herself as becoming this like holy being as opposed to you know what the real i, I shouldn't say it like that because that makes me sound condescending but you know like the that whole process should be about self-examination and self-worth and bettering yourself and not like trying to push that out on other people because you can recognize the failings of you that you need to work on so it just shows that it was never a true conversion or a true like religious experience well, right, was... i mean look i'm not religious at all but the, the 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 whole point is to sub subsume like oneself like not you know raise yourself up to the point of you know whatever climbing up the great great chain of being or whatever like you know to where like you think you are worthy of heaven it's like the idea is that you are not worthy of heaven and you need to always be making yourself worthy of heaven correct i mean well and the other thing too is that i don't know how i want to say it it's it's like the idea that she gets struck with the idea she's a savior she's going to save somebody like is 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 that hubris that i'm talking about you know like and pride the fact that she's sin i mean that she's Welsh and that God's just speaking to her in Welsh. Like she's not like hearing some right mysterious other language. She's just like hearing her or whatever. I don't know. What which I thought was a terrifying like a really unsettling scene when it's like mostly black, like and God's talking to her in that Welsh voice. Like that that's that's a that, I thought that was a really unsettling scene. Like all of that. Green. But yeah, it's a fantastic movie. We didn't even talk about the fact that it's just brilliantly directed. Yeah. It's got the exact right use of. Oh, fuck. What's the word I'm looking for? Um, unreliable narrator combined with like a small amount of digital effects combined with like just the right times to like pull those moments where it goes from being kind of just an uncomfortable character drama to being something else which is what sort of pulls it into the realm of being a horror movie i think um and the fact that it deals with like the biggest horror of all which is like you know the human mind and how it's like almost unknowable in a lot of ways so but yeah just it was it's fantastic i thought well one of the the best movies i've seen in a couple of years and i actually felt bad pulling it off the fresh five list but um i thought it was really good here just because she is so compelling yeah, and because she's compelling in the opposite way that every other female character on this list is, where they're all kind of like protagonists, and she's really she's your main character, but she's really the antagonist of this movie. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's 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 a sad antagonist because you sure, can, yeah. I you know, have well, she's both a, she's it. both a, both kind of the protagonist and the antagonist. You know, it's like you want to see her break the whatever cycle she's in right now but um and, and she has that opportunity towards the end when that friend non-friend kind of comes back 
but by that point she's too far gone you know and like there 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 is that possibility for that union companionship and it's like she just kind of rejects it like immediately because she's too far gone down her own like kind of like crazy path of thinking that she's gonna ascend to heaven like right um i i think ely's really good in this too like um in terms of playing the choreographer dancer um yeah. I, I think that she plays that kind of like it's like you can't forgive her the way she acts I think like of how she almost like misuses or abuses um, Maud but it's like that kind of just way she plays just this kind of tired exhausted and not just physically because of the cancer but just this kind of almost like a philosophically she's just done with everything and it's like she's at she's at the end and she just wants to drink and have sex and you know like right. try to enjoy what little life she has left and she's done with all like the philosophical forget about the fact that she's lost everything in her life that she valued like sure she does right. she can't yeah. dance anymore right. she can't go to these fancy parties and this one fancy party she throws for herself right. is ruined by yeah the fanaticism of this like crazy girl that she's sort of tried to help in some ways yeah yeah so anyway but but it's, it's, but it's a really good I, I think she like hits all the right notes in terms of like not redeeming that character but also not making you hate that character either um like because she could easily be turning this loathsome character that's caused this trauma like to increase and i don't view it that way at all you know i mean so i think she really does a good job of balancing all that um so i saw the face you made when i mentioned 67 percent from audiences do you want to go ahead and predict what the uh what the main like kind of like themes are of audiences boring it's too hard to follow um boring's there not, yeah. not not enough happens in it uh she's on level yeah so only a few scenes of horror yeah like um not a horror at all um and then predictable ending that's an interesting complaint i mean i guess at a certain point you can sort of right it's almost like a like an, an inevitable ending i don't right. know about predictable that, but isn't 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 that the horror yeah <laughs> i don't know uh, uh, yeah wait this is this is we've done enough of these now any kind of slow burn horror movie that is more about mood than it is about jump scares or anything like that these are always the common complaints oh it's not really a horror movie it's not that scary like um you know it's boring like right uh it's people that cannot get themselves engaged in like realizing what true horror really is like um having just finished haunting a hill house for the third time it's like to me that's true horror just like this is true horror because it's the horror, like you said, at the worst kind of the mind. And it's like what you have to deal with, like, you know, every day. 
um, of your life combined with like these for her imagined supernatural things, you know, in that other example, like kind of real, you know, supernatural things. But it's like that that kind of like slow burn psychological horror to me is the best kind of horror um with some notable exceptions like but um perspective too it's like think about the horror of the people that have to interact with her we're like it's going to be everyone asking themselves what could i have done differently right and it's like the answer is nothing like sure it was inevitable that she this was going to happen just because of her mental instability and like the events of her life. And it wasn't like one encounter or one, you know, missed phone call or one like bad conversation that caused it. It's just right. Like, I think, yeah, I I don't know. I I think this is a really brilliant movie. It is super. Yeah. Super excited when I watched it. Yeah. No, I, I, I really enjoyed it a lot too. Um, that's much. I think I want to watch it again. Like I, like even after talking about it, like I really want to just sit there and see, like knowing everything that's going to happen, just how much you can see in that buildup. Yeah, oh, God, I have already forgotten. What was what is this? You need a free trial to Epics. Epics. Right. Yeah, Epics. You can get a seven day free trial on Prime and watch it if you want to. It doesn't have much else, Epics, but um, at least you can watch this. Uh, all right. So number one on your list is Deborah Granick's 2010 movie Winner's Bone stars Jennifer Lawrence, John Hawks, Dale Dickey, and Garrett Dillahunt has a 94% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes, a 76% from audiences. You want to tell us a little bit about this movie and why it's number one on the list? Uh, Because it's pretty fucking brilliant. Um, It's another... I don't want to call it small story, but it really is kind of just like a very compact personal like journey. Um, Lawrence plays um, 16, 17. She changes how old she is depending on like who she's talking to Um, year old girl who lives in the Ozarks um, who has to take care of her two younger siblings, uh, um, brother and sister because her mother is in a catatonic state uh, you find out that her father is a very um, locally infamous um, outlaw like he cooks meth um, and to pay his last bond for when he got arrested <clears throat> he basically put their entire like house and property up as the bond for it um, and if it's he doesn't appear in court on a specific date, then the bond is revoked and they're going to lose their house, um, which spurs her on this almost hero's journey kind of to um, go to all these different families and people she knows that live on the mountain um, and try and uh, gain their help to find her father to make him go to jail, make him go to court so that they don't lose their house so she can save her family. Um and that's the premise of the movie. Uh, you know, she has interactions with um, her uncle, uh, Teardrop, um, uh, who's played by uh, John Hawks um, in a really amazing role. Um, and then she goes to a couple of other families, people that she knows. Um, no one will tell her where her father is. Uh, she eventually gets warned off the mountain by. Uh, the matriarch of like a fellow clan 
um, who also is implied is into, you know, dealing meth or producing meth um, and told just leave it alone, but she doesn't. So she ends up getting beaten up. Um, she's rescued by, by Teardrop, who puts himself in jeopardy, um, kind of to rescue her. Um, and in the end, her resilience and her resolve, I guess, impresses um, the one family who takes and takes her to her father's uh, watery grave, where she is forced to hold his hands out of the water while they get chainsawed off so she can take him to the sheriff to prove that he's dead. Um, and in the end, you kind of get the impression that she's made a good impression on um, her uncle and that they're going to have a closer relationship and um, he's going to become maybe a bigger part of her life. Um, it's just, it's brilliant, like almost like outlier American dialogue and that whole idea of like this, almost like the, like, 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 um, La Casa Nostra or whatever type, uh, veil of silence type thing where everyone knows that everyone's a criminal, but you don't talk about people being criminals and you don't definitely talk to the law or any outsiders about it. And you don't ask questions, right. you know, you just like put your head down and live your life. And all these people are like incredibly canny and smart, but come off as like uneducated just because of their language um there's a lot of deep connection to like the the folklore and the mythology of like the american the appalachians and the ozarks like you know the the hill country um these people who are like telling their legends and song and even in like the most dire of circumstances or someone kind of singing like this like murder ballad be in the background and uh, Lawrence is amazing in it. It's a really brilliant performance by a very, you know, young actress. Um, you know, is the tough, resourceful, like almost indomitable Re. Um, Hawks is brilliant as Teardrop. It's a both like warm and menacing performance at the same time. It's you know, you get the feeling that again, like there's these people that have these strong bonds and these strong morals, but who are also at a moment's notice are willing to like murder someone just to maintain that level of honor and, you know, that veil of silence that they all uphold. So, um, and also beautifully shot. Um, uh, Granick does a great job of filming that like early late fall, early winter, um, mountainside look of like the empty trees and the the hollers and these small houses that just kind of exist off on their own and are self-sufficient just um it's just a really brilliant beautiful movie the story is really compelling um you gain because it focuses on her so strongly you gain such a solid sense of who she is as a person and you really are pulling for her to succeed like every setback is just kind of like you take it to heart, like when she's yeah. having these setbacks happen. Um, and ultimately, you know, just like the ending, it's just really satisfying to see her like have the success and, you know, in a really non-traditional sense of um, basically like overcoming the odds and 
kind of outlasting like all these adults around her and gaining their respect <clears throat> just by you know not giving up so yeah i love this movie i'd only seen this movie once before and it made a pretty big impression on me um and it popped into my head when we were first talking about it um and then i watched um Granick's other um yeah which one it's called um leave yes. no Tra- um is that's the one a, from a couple years ago or that's like that... 2018 okay yeah because there's another one she has that's like from 2004 as well oh um, yeah one um she does a lot of documentary stuff and anyway just it's just as brilliant it's it's a really great movie she's got a really strong that's the one with ben foster then right is that correct yep okay. exactly yeah right. she's got a really strong sense of language and the connection between people based on shared experience and culture, which I don't know if that makes sense really, but it's like when you see a director who captures like a culture or a society that well, like that strongly, like it's really amazing. Like just to, it's just to, to me, it blows me away when somebody like I felt that way watching Justified sometimes, you know, like because it's it's a similar setting because Justified's in Kentucky, but right, you know, like the similar like you know up in the mountains and these people who were sort of separated from society, um, just to see like that language and that lifestyle like captured like that is is yeah. impressive. Fargo, I think, to some extent, I know that you're not the biggest fan of Fargo, but that's another one where I kind of feel like. Well, you know, right. But I, I'm only not a fan of it because I think it makes fun of the people as opposed to like honors them in a lot of ways. But um, I think this TV show, though, honors them much more than the movie does. Um, And that has a lot of that similar what you're talking about, I think. Um, well, yeah, I, it's really funny because I've thought about what exactly what you're talking about. It's like one of the main things that I've thought about, like about this movie is like how much I like to see that those worlds represented and so i look i've had problems watching television shows until recently throughout all of covid which i used to watch television constantly throughout my life and um like since like the early 90s basically it's like i was television obsessed like i watched tons of stuff um i tried watching ozark and i got through the second season maybe like halfway and i just had to stop and then I don't know if that's a statement on that show or if it's a statement on me because I was having trouble watching television, but what this movie has in terms of a place and a time and a setting and, and dialogue and like dialect like that, that show doesn't have. And you look like, yeah, sorry. I've never watched it. So I don't know. Yeah. But it's like, to me, this felt, much more like what you were talking about is how I felt when I watched justified about like the hollers in Kentucky and stuff like that. Like, like it felt like I was watching and especially because a lot of these actors and stuff like that, like aren't like really notable actors. Like, you know, Dale Dickey is somebody who in the past 10 years has gotten a few more roles, like in as the kind of like, you know, madam of that, you know, town or whatever. But, um, but yeah, I mean, like she she's gotten more roles, but a lot of these actors I've never seen before, so it really added a sense of realism in the movie to me of like 
just the way that they looked like so the casting i thought was really brilliant in this too like um not just the lead roles but also like the minor roles that are in this movie i thought was really impressive um but yeah i thought about that about that sense of place and how everybody else does it and like how how few times you see this it's like i'm trying to think of other movies that are like even in the same state um as this and it's like and i and i couldn't think of any so i just like really quickly while you were talking like searched it like in missouri and it's like in terms of recent movies it's gone girl um takes place in missouri yeah um jesus camp <laughs> um documentary and i didn't remember this but waiting for guffman takes place there but i mean that's something different and winter's bone like that's it um in terms of things that take place in like kind of like somewhat modern times um the, so with like pulling it outside of like the ozarks or whatever i think if you look at things like um there's certain areas of the country where like that like like the patois and the the look and like the feel can be captured and it's usually by people so um granite did does like a huge amount of research into things and like just i mean she's a documentarian i think first and foremost so i think she really like invests herself in making sure that she knows what that language sounds like and what those people act like and the only times you see that really close is like you see it sometimes in movies set in new york um you see it some times in movies set in boston although sometimes i think those are more over the top but like you look like goodwill hunting or something you know that like captures that feeling of like the southie boston right um and it's it, it's similar but like this is just the the set i know that it's like mostly probably found locations but the set design the clothing design like everything about it it just there's yeah. such small details that pull you in and you look at these people who they're wearing layered clothing so they don't know if they're going to be like sleeping in a house like you know they're ready for whatever um everything's utilitarian um i don't know just i really um really impressed and amazed by this movie and i'm telling you like i don't know what list it would make but um uh leave no trace is pretty amazing and it's free on prime and it's definitely worth um, oh is it okay i'll watch that then hours of your life okay just Uh, um similar but so dissimilar like it's hard to explain but like you you feel like the same because it's a smaller subculture basically that it's focused on um i don't want to give too much away because if you're going to watch it but right yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, I will. it's really 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 well done and she's got a an amazing ear for dialogue and for just the humanity of people yeah. this this movie impressed me so much because for so many reasons but namely that it's like lawrence is really fucking good in this like i always knew john hawks was a good actor i mean i have known that for a long time and i think people that really intently follow film and television have known that for a long time that he's a good actor but i mean he nails this fucking role but it's like lawrence who when i like did some research on her in terms of her films since this point like her movies just kind of like critically just keep going downhill um you know with little spurts here and there but pretty much just keep going downhill the longer she's in acting um this is her best reboot reviewed movie um out of everything and 
I, I was really shocked by how good she is in this because I think of her as mystique or whatever, you know, I mean, I think of, I, I don't, you know, which I don't think is an incredibly impressive performance. Um, but she's really damn good in this. The direction that this movie itself is really damn good in the sense that like, it's not over. Nothing is overdone in this. Like it is the story of a young girl trying to keep her house. That's really all it is. And they don't go overboard and make it melodramatic or put her in peril beyond what seems realistic. Like it is just this very tight, simple narrative that focuses on this character and how she handles this situation without it being extreme. Like it doesn't turn into an action movie. It doesn't turn into and I, and I thought that restraint from both a screenwriter and a director to not do that is really impressive. So I'm really looking forward to like watching more. Like she only has this movie and she has a movie um, from 2004 called Down to the Bone. And I haven't looked that up to see where it's at. But I know that um, she has a reputation of... I, as I read about her, uh, the Deborah Granick I'm talking about, of discovering young actresses um, in her movies. So Vera Farmiga is the star of that movie in 2004. And it's kind of like Vera Farmiga's like, kind of like breakthrough role. And then Jennifer Lawrence. And then, um, uh, yes, yes. Um, who goes on the star in Jojo Rabbit that we've talked about in the podcast before. So, um so that's impressive that's that's impressive as well in terms of like a track record um discovering these young actresses but yeah i love this movie like i wasn't surprised that you had it as number one as soon as i watched i was like jesus christ like how did i not even know about this movie until yeah it's it's weird that it because i saw jennifer i'm gonna be honest i saw jennifer lawrence as the star of this and i was like what the fuck is he doing <laughs> like i really thought like what the f- what's he trying to do is he trying to get some like like some recency like you know like pop or something like you know like but no fucking amazing yeah it's really good yeah great movie surprised we never have talked about it before although i nope. guess probably it was just it's one of those things that i i watched it during my physical netflix subscription time period Jeez, yeah. When I was getting like three movies a week, so it was one of those things where I probably like I watched it, I really enjoyed it, but then I sent it back and I didn't think about it. Right. Like years. But you also have to remember it's like 2010. It's like that was like I'm two years into like not really watching movies that much anymore. You know? Yeah, that's true. So it's like, you know, even if you were telling me about movies, it was probably like, oh, that's cool. Like, (laughs) you know, I mean I wouldn't think about it like um but yeah no i was i was really impressed by this movie um in every way and uh, i'll definitely watch anything else she she does so um, yes it was a good list this week i was um i enjoyed watching all these movies again yeah same all right um see yeah so that's the episode for the week um i agree i even with my reservations with Lady Vengeance, there's a lot of good stuff in that movie, despite my criticisms. Um, and, 
yeah, I look forward to doing more of these. I mean, we we did it this month after we did it last year in January, mainly because it's like, you know, just like we were talking about with Asian Americans, it's like, I think but we, we made a commitment to kind of like try to start doing stuff in different months to, you know, just try to expose people to different actors, directors, like all those kind of things, uh, you know, in different, you know, uh, groups and, um, you know, increase like some representation. And yeah, I mean, I, I think next year, like, you know, I mean, and look, you, I'll be honest, I don't know if you know this, you have a fantastic track record with female directors, like throughout the podcast history, because I've actually like looked into like, what if we did some stuff with like female directors or something like that? I've looked into this and it's like i don't know if you realize like comparatively like how many times female directors have popped up on your list um but it it would be more than probably what would average would be um well i'd like to say that i think about that but i don't know i just go with stuff i like so sure sure um but but yeah. just female directors need to be more talked about right sure because yeah. there's some great stuff yeah and I mean, I, I'm terrible about like Criterion. Like I know Criterion's doing a really great job of like bringing stuff back from that people didn't know about from the past, you know, whatever fifty years, and really highlighting female directors and stuff like that. Um, and I'm terrible about like not watching those things, but I really should probably watch more of it. But they're um, they've been really good in the past like year since I've. Well, had access to your account but um uh of like really highlighting female directors and having like different female directors collections and stuff coming over on criteria and i really mean to sit down and like watch at least one of those movies and somehow like never do because i'm too busy watching like john wick 2 on peacock or something like that because it came up for free to watch more agnes varda i think you would like her a lot yeah which i really enjoyed um yeah, nine to five seven five seven yeah. nine to five uh, <laughs> right um although i enjoyed nine to five um when i was a kid too so. working nine to five a way to make a living anything with dabney coleman right you do love some dabney coleman i do i really do i didn't realize how much i love dabney coleman but um lots of love you know yeah what's the movie where he um the comedy with where he like puts out a contract on his own life do you remember this movie no no i don't like know. he has a i kind of know what you're talking about but i don't know oh, let me i now i'm upset that i oh my god he's been in 178 things um i think it's critical condition without having like actually gotten there yet um nope short time short time is what thank god called. we're not doing the quick dabney <laughs> um Hold on. I just want to see because it's no critical condition is not a um oh he's in hot to trot. Jesus, do you know that movie, Frank? Of course I know hot to trot. <laughs> you say you, I, you don't you don't like comedies? I that I haven't watched them. Critical condition is a Richard Pryor movie comedy, so you probably haven't ever watched it um from 1987 con man who's framed in a jewelry i've never seen this movie okay um so yeah i was completely wrong 
Directed by the same guy who directed. Uh... Where is I don't see this movie on his filmography. Is this just? It's not. No, I, I I thought critical. No, the thought process here was I thought it was called Critical Condition, and then I thought, why did Critical Condition come to mind? Oh, Dabney Coleman's not in it. What is Critical Condition? I looked the movie up. It's an eighty-seven comedy starring Richard Pryor. Um, and then I started looking into who directed this, and it's the guy that directed Coal Miner's Daughter. And now mm. it's Michael Michael Apted. Um, mm. <laughs> and he directed Gorillas in this too. Um. <sighs> so, this is where it has taken us now. Um, I only directed some Ray Donovan too. Awesome, <laughs> and Bloodline. He's his career really went downhill. All right, so two weeks we'll be back with the '92 horror list. Um, good movies on there too. Looking forward yep. to that. Um, things we never talked about before. So everybody, thank you for listening and have a great week. Good night.